Today's class is about the beginning of the church in Russia. We usually think of the church as beginning with the conversion of the great prince of Kiev, Vladimir, in 988. But the uh, real history of, of the Russian church goes back almost more than 100 years before Vladimir. And Russia, defined largely by its rivers, the, the thing that brought Russia into existence was the trade going up and down the rivers between the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea in the north. The beginning of the, there were Slavic people living in this area for a long time, but what formed the country was probably the Muslim conquest in the Mediterranean, which made it difficult to trade through the Mediterranean out into Western Europe and pushed the trade to Northern Europe eastward through the Baltic Sea and up and down these rivers. And so we had settlements forming in the seven and 800s during the time of the, in the Western Europe, we think of the time of the Vikings, when the Vikings were attacking uh, England and France, Ireland, burning down monasteries and setting up little principalities of their own. This is the same time when the Vikings were uh, setting up trade settlements down along the river, taking over some of the areas and making raids on Constantinople occasionally. The, I don't know if you have the Feast of the Protection, but actually, which is very popular in the Russian church, but it actually refers to the Virgin Mary defeating a Russian attack on Constantinople. Somehow the Greeks don't seem to pay much attention to that feast, but the Russians, were, I guess, were very impressed. <laughs> so they uh, keep that. But it was from that time when these were, because these were pagan Vikings, and they, uh, well, the Slavic tribes were pagan as well. Now, the Byzantines had had contact with the Slavic tribes uh, for some time through the various nomadic people who settled on the steppes. Earlier, you had the, uh, the Goths, the Huns, and then the Bulgars, and, and then uh, at the time when we're talking about the Khazars were settled here, and were actually, in a way, rivals of the uh, Viking traders working up and down the Dnieper River to get to the Baltic. So part of the difficulty, the Russians uh, in the 830s had tried to make some kind of deal, again, an alliance going with the Byzantine Empire, and the Byzantine Empire already was committed to its alliance to the Khazar Turks over here. So that's why the Russians were, you know, were mainly attacking for a well, while because they, they didn't have friendly relations with, with Constantinople. However, partly perhaps as a result of this, these missions and maybe of the attacks, uh, the, the, this was uh, the time when the Byzantine Empire was, the Byzantine Church was beginning to send out missionaries to the Slavs who lived in this area, the area, of, this is Bulgaria here, and although the original Bulgars were Huns or Hunnic Turkic people, the people they're ruling over were all these Slavic tribes, and so the language Bulgarian is not any longer, a, it's not a, even at this time was not a, a Mongol language anymore, it was a Slavic language. And up in north here, we had Moravia, and we have the famous missionaries uh, Cyril and Methodius, time about 860, were sent up to Moravia to translate the services and the gospel and religious literature into the Slavic language that the Moravian people could understand. They were being missionized from Austria 
But the German uh, missionaries, two things, wanted them to use all Latin, and the second thing they wanted was them to be under the German Empire. And the Moravians were not interested in that, but they wanted to have their own... They wanted to be independent, and they also wanted to have things in their own language. So the Cyril Methodius, when they went up there, they not only had to do translating, but this was a... These barbarian tribes didn't have writing, so they had to construct a alphabet for them to use. And the original alphabet Cyril and Methodius created was called Glycolytic, which is a rather complicated script, which has been sort of simplified over the years to what we now call the Cyrillic, which is what you think of as the Russian alphabet. But it comes from the work that was done there. At the same time, the church was also trying to convert the rulers of Bulgaria to Christianity, which they did just a few years after, about 863. And this allowed, once, once Bulgaria, the Bulgarians were quite close to Constantinople, and once they agreed to uh, become Orthodox Christians, the interesting thing was that instead of trying to say, okay, well, we now have to get all these Bulgarians to learn Greek so that we can, you know, get them to learn how to do the service and stuff, they continued with this work that Cyril and Methodius were doing of the translations into Slavic, aided by the fact that ultimately the Germans kind of took over Moravia, and in 885 they threw out all the Byzantine missionaries and sent them all down to Bulgaria, unintentionally. <laughs> but that's So Bulgaria became this great center for translation, for transmitting the Christian message, which was up to this time all in Greek, or at least in the East in Greek, into the Slavic languages. And this becomes the basis of sort of our Slavic orthodoxy was because the church did not just, like in the, in the Latin West, there was a sense of trying to force all the people to come into the Latin world. And so the services were all in Latin, even though the people didn't actually speak Latin. And so you have the, the kind of separation between the clergy who are educated in this Latin culture and then everybody else who are then become kind of the ignorant lay people who can't possibly understand what's going on. Yes? Some questions. Um, you mentioned that the Germans uh, they threw away the Moravians. Yeah, threw away um, nephew or something. They, they, yeah, they, they overthrew the king who was supporting the missionaries through... And then they, they some, threw the Greek missionaries out? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm just, you know, I have a great sense of the period of time that the Germans were, were, were Christians, right? Yes, right. They were, this is of course, this is the time, we're in the 800s here, the 60s and the 80s, so we're after Charlemagne, and Charlemagne has already sort of defined, he's, you know, made, he's got himself proclaimed emperor, established a German, which is, he's saying is the true empire, and the basis for this is that those Greeks are heretics, because they don't have the filioque. And uh, so the Germans, for two reasons, are not interested in having Byzantine missionaries in a neighboring country. One is that they see themselves as being the ones keeping the true faith and the Greeks are off somehow. So, And the other is that they see themselves also as the true empire and the kings of the Greeks are, are not also, you know, are, are rivals and not measuring up. So they, uh, yeah, they weren't, they weren't happy to have Byzantine, they weren't happy to have Byzantine influence close by. They wanted to, take over 
and make in, incorporate Moravia as they did with Poland into into the German Empire and Church. Yeah. There's a sense in which the schism has already begun. Yes. In which there are, there are parts of Eastern and Western Christianity that already don't uh, consider themselves brothers and therefore cooperate in missionary. Right. Yeah. Well, well, this is of course the time of the Patriarch Photius, so we're in the middle of the Photian schism. But the Photian schism itself is a product, really, of um, of Charlemagne's agenda, which was to replace the Eastern Roman Empire with a new Roman Empire based in Germany. And that's, and so in his lifetime, you have this process of trying to discredit and sort of disenfranchise that empire and, and put, give uh, people in Europe, because before that, the Franks, everybody, you know, even though the, you say the Western Empire fell a long time ago in 476 officially, you know, well, up until Charlemagne's time, even if you lived in a country that was nowhere near, you know, Byzantine Empire, you still said, well, who's the emperor? Well, the guy in Constantinople, he's our emperor, he's the Christian emperor, we're all sort of under him. Even though, of course, you don't pay him any taxes, you don't have to listen to him because he lives far away. But Charlemagne changed all that. He said, well, that, that guy over there is, is really not, uh, correct, and, and the, the real empire is here, and this, this is, so it's that rivalry. Yes? Is it already a Poland? No, it's south of Poland. It would be today, uh, probably where the Czech Republic is. Alright, now, Bulgaria had its ups and downs politically. It had several periods when the kings of Bulgaria be- called themselves emperors and actually ruled over not just uh, their own people, but large portion of the Balkans. Uh, in some ways, uh, replacing, perhaps hoping to replace the Byzantine Empire with their own empire. <laughs> but in all of that, those periods, there was a very uh, rich cultural life that developed out of their commitment. Because it, because once they, when they first became Christian, there was a rebellion of the old Bulgar, the, Mon- the Mongol aristocracy, rebelled against the king to try to re. Uh, implement paganism. In the civil war that followed, those people were mostly killed. And after that, Bulgaria became very committed to Christianity, and particularly Orthodox Christianity. And so there, even when they were politically rivals of the Byzantine emperors, they were building this uh, Byzantine civilization and the life of the Byzantine church within their own people through the, through the translation. Now, this, why is this, what does this all have to do with Russia? Well, 860 was around the time also that missionaries were going up to Kiev. And we find out from Photius that in 867, he's able to uh, place a, a bishop in Kiev. So the church... And this church seems to largely have had, uh, even though it's connected in one way, administratively, it always remains connected to Constantinople rather than Bulgaria. But personnel-wise, we find that throughout the early Russian period, the people being sent up to Kiev are, there's a lot of connections with Bulgaria. And this is because the, uh, instead of going up to Kiev and some Greeks going up there and trying to communicate with the Russians and figure out, you know, somehow how they can 
convey to them what Christianity is. Well, they already, the, essentially the language at this point in the medieval period, they're all very similar. And uh, the medieval Bulgarian, see what we now call Old Church Slavonic, is sort of a difficult language for people, modern Russian speakers. It's not all that clear, but that's partly because it's uh, not just that it was coming from Bulgarian, but that it's a medieval language. It's the language. I mean, if you were to be reading uh, the Anglo-Saxon texts of Alfred the Great, I mean, if we were to use those in church all the time, you know, you would find it hard to understand too. But the people that lived in Anglo-Saxon England found them easy to understand. So the same here that these all this literature that was being translated was all able to come up here, and, and so the church, uh, in a way, the church culture, you know, was already into the into the Slavic language and brought up and uh, a lot of progress was made by the church and we start seeing uh, a reference to uh, Russian Christians in the treaties that are made after this period so from 867 on I mean we already have a bishop there we have a community we have uh, people visiting there's both there continue to be pagans among the Russians that are coming down but there's also Christian uh, Russians coming down for for trade because they're running this trade route back and forth here. The uh, other thing that happens is, is that the wife of one of the Russian kings herself converts to Christianity and this is Olga. Um, she's and she she's uh, St. Vladimir's grandmother. And so she's quite a bit before his conversion, but so it's already, Christianity is already sufficiently established that the wife of the, of the king can become, uh, can become a Christian in what's still officially a pagan country. Uh, this is, by the way, this is the time of, you have, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Rurik and those people, but uh, apparently there were already these Slavic settlements and then Rurik was uh, according to one book, he was a um, duke in Denmark, a Viking duke under the German emperor, who was called in to Novgorod to come help uh, resist against the Khazars. And then he actually was not. He's not. His uh, he and his family are not in Kiev at the time when the bishopric is established. But Olga is part of that family. And that the that family will continue throughout the Kievan period. And the way the Russian system worked was that all these little towns along here, what they did was when uh, the father died or something, they sort of everyone was inheriting, you know, all the sons. So they would divide up the territory. Well, you get this one, you get this, depending on how old, you know, were you the oldest or not. If you're the oldest, you get Kiev and so on. And then when the oldest one die, you know, then the next they'd all kind of move over. So it's kind of strange because, you know, these kings were moving around, which later on um, makes for a lot of little conflicts and civil wars between them, which probably wasn't helpful. But eventually we get to, uh, well, Olga's son, Sviatoslav, uh, Sviatoslav, Love or Scott the Polk, one of those guys, I don't remember. But he, uh, he was pagan and he, he managed to defeat the, uh, Khazars over here. And then, 
went across and took over parts of Bulgaria, but was driven out by the Byzantines. Because at this time, where after the Muslim conquest, where the, the, conver- the Christianization of Russia is taking place during the time when the Byzantine Empire was in its sort of revival after the iconoclast period, in a way, uh, this is why Russia, somehow it helps deform the way Russian church is, is that all of the major theological controversies of the early church were already done. And when we get into this, Russia, the Byzantine Empire is sort of now, you know, kind of a world power. The church is pretty much set, uh, church teachings and kind of fully developed, and there's no controversies. And this is what kind of, I think, gives a sense of, to the Russians of a sort of staticness that the church, you know, and the empire are givens, and you just sort of take them, and there's no, um, you know, they're not, Russian churches seem to have kind of an idea that things are fluid or developing, it's just that because they inherited all sort of as a whole, and there's, that's, I think, partly maybe what contributes to kind of the sense of, uh, conservativeness of Russian Orthodoxy, perhaps in relation to Greek Orthodoxy. But um, there, after he, he is killed uh, in an ambush by the, from the Turkish uh, people, the uh, Vladimir comes to the throne and sends out emissaries because they're pagan, but now that, you know, the church has been around in, in Kiev, there's there's a bishop there for over a hundred years. This is a so it's, it's you know sometimes we imagine the yeah you know uh, Vladimir you know up in the middle of nowhere some pagan person suddenly wants to know you know well gee what's Christianity and you know what's this and sends out people to find out well you know they're not in the really in the middle of nowhere they're in the middle on the middle of this major uh, you know international trade route which makes its living by trading with Constantinople. And they, and they've had the Orthodox Church sitting in their capital for over a hundred years with the bishop there. So this is not, uh, people that are completely naive or don't know anything, but he is still, he's interested in exploring, you know, the different options. Uh, and ultimately his, his emissaries come back from Constantinople. They're very impressed with the beautiful services there. And the feeling that they, they don't know whether they're in heaven or on earth and they, um, decide that that's what they're going to do. Partly also, <coughs> there's a, Vladimir wants to marry the emperor's, uh, sister and that, that also enters into it perhaps. <coughs> when he becomes Christian, that now sort of officially makes Russia Christian, but again, this is, it's not like, well, See, all these people were pagan, and then okay, he says, okay, today we're all going to be Christian, and and then then it become, would be pretty amazing that you know somehow the church in a very short time develops this very elaborate and kind of advanced Christian culture in Russia, because when you look at uh, the writings that, that are going, you know, that from the from the early Russian uh, bishops and, and uh, monks up there. Well, where did this all come from? Partly, I mean, partly it's that the educate, you know, all the educational materials are coming from Bulgaria and the, many of the people are coming from Constantinople, but also it's partly that the church has been, that this 
Slavic church has been in existence now for quite a while, and uh, we end up with people that are that are educated. We have uh, uh, Vladimir's son, Yaroslav the Wise, uh, is kind of famous for the development of uh, Christian culture in in Russia. He his uh, sponsored uh, a great large translation project, not just of um, service books, but general all kinds of uh, books uh, dealing with uh, secular knowledge and culture as well as with religious culture. So the Kiev uh, continues this what B- Bulgaria has sort of started of creating, a, let's say, a sort of sub-Byzantine culture within in the Slavic lands that has a large uh, intellectual base that that is not just available to scholars who can, like in the Western world, where you ha- if you are going to study, you had to learn Latin to go to the university, but is in the language of ordinary people. So this um, allows a much more pervasive uh, spread of culture and and not just culture, but understanding of what the services are saying, understanding of what the teachings of the church are, because uh, the lives of saints, for example, when they're translated, well, everybody can understand them, as opposed to in the West, where only you know only the priests are going to be able to understand what these are saying. The uh, there's a number of of uh, important individuals. Here, one thing that happens is at the, in Kiev, you have the formation of the uh, monastery of the caves. It was kind of famous throughout Russian history, but this is when it starts. And it comes uh, from, there were, well, one monk from Mount Athos was uh, Anthony, who was Russian. And it's interesting, so they had Russian monks on Mount Athos. And the abbot of his monastery said, well, we, they need you back in Russia, so go ahead and and he went up there and you know, things weren't so good, so he came back and they said, no, no, go back. <laughs> and so he went back. Uh, then you have uh, see the uh, Theodosius was actually a local Russian. He's the other kind of founder. So that, that uh, but his theology is, is very profound. He had a, a kind of uh, sense of kind of this literal fulfilling of the gospel in some ways, uh, a very beautiful spirituality that's not even just, that's kind of unique in some ways, is not just uh, isolation, but sort of uh, solitude and, and kind of life of a hermit combined with action in the world uh, on behalf of charity and uh, influencing, uh, trying to influence the uh, princes to do what's right. <laughs> so it was, it's a, a very nice... Uh, combination of the the life the sort of spiritual life of the hermit and the active life of the uh, charitable monasteries that we you know of the cenobitic monasteries in in, in the, uh, Constantinople that comes into the life of Russia at the very beginning the uh, other person connected with this was the archbishop Hilarion who was a native Russian he's the first native Russian uh, metropolitan the way that Constantinople uh, set this up was that well, Kiev was the capital, so they made the uh, bishop of Kiev, 
who had been there, they'd been, you know, they made him the Metropolitan, and that means kind of like a, an archbishop, and he was the person in charge, and then just like the, the king uh, or prince of the Kiev was called like Grand Prince, which literally, I mean, probably is really, it's the way we translate it, but it's really like High King, and these are other princes all under him, so the other bishops, you know, were under uh, Kiev. <laughs> this would be from, well, Vladimir is uh, 988, so in the 1000, kind of 1000, and up, you know, in the 1100s as well. That's how it's all developing. Yaroslav is in the 1000s, and then uh, 1050 is when the uh, Kiev Monastery, 1051 is when the Kiev Monastery is founded. Uh, one thing that, that you didn't elaborate on was uh, uh, about the Russian adversary that came to Constantinople. I've heard that they also visited Rome. Yes, they went to, they went to the, to the, uh, this is the Jews, and probably the Khazars, uh, were Jewish, um, and the Muslims and the Latins, and, yeah, they weren't happy with any of those, because, they were kind of shopping? yes, but that's the story, and I guess I should, you know, point out some of the books, uh, you have, if, this is, uh, the main, Thing is the uh, Russian primary chronicle, just the basic early history of the Kievan period. There's also the uh, Kiev Caves Paterikon, which is also from this. Covers sort of the beginnings of the Russian Church. It's the lives of the fathers of the of the monastery. Some of the others I'll talk about later, but uh, but in English you have the um, Series on the Russian Religious Mind by George Fedotov and uh, Ways of Russian Theology, two-volume series by George Florovsky. They're also kind of at their surveys. But, yeah. Yes, and they, they certain things they didn't like about uh, the different ones, and then the uh, and the Latin service, you know, it was okay, but it wasn't. Uh, they didn't have. Uh, the glory that the that they saw in Constantinople and the Orthodox, they didn't, yeah, they didn't have the, the sense of being in heaven. So that was uh, one of the things that convinced them. I, I, I also suspect it's just that uh, the Orthodox Church had been there for a long time, and they were very close. You know, their their commercial life was involved in close contact with Constantinople. So I mean, they could have allied with. Uh, the Muslims and, or some of the, you know, the, or the West, but that, those, all places also would have been more remote to them. And well, that was a pretty pivotal decision. Yes, that was a pivotal decision. I mean, each of these countries ultimately makes that decision what religion they're going to be as they're coming from paganism into, uh, let's say the modern world and they, and that decides their fate, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was what they, what, ha- what happens to them. And, and the- well, yes, and actually we'll talk about that how, because it, it becomes at this point, of course. This, I mean, there's the conflict, but we hadn't yet, um, you know, had the official schism. We have obviously there's some conflict with the German Church, uh, 
you know, in versus orthodoxy here in uh, Central Europe. But at that point, the uh, German Empire was not that involved. Although I guess they had one of Vladimir's sons, I think, may have had some contact with the West. But he was not the one who ultimately that won out. I think it's the one who who killed Boris and Gleb was, uh, was might have been that one. Okay, this Kievan period, sort of the foundational period of, of Russian Orthodox Church, and if the Church Russia was uh, fairly free and, and prosperous at this time, it had some conflict between the different relatives, deciding you know who gets what city, but essentially uh, things were going well. The problem that they had was that uh, Genghis Khan had united the Mongols back in Mongolia and decided to take over the world and set out these big armies. And the 1220s, the first one uh, comes along and uh, hits here and defeats the Russian army, but then uh, the king back in Mongolia dies, so they go back to decide who the next king's going to be. And then in the around 1230, 8, 1240 to 1240, it's, so I guess the conventional year, remember, is 1240. is the year that uh, Kiev is burned. But it started a couple years before that. The uh, Mongols come back <coughs> with the intention of taking over this area <coughs> sort of permanently. And they come up through uh, Russia, the princes are not very united and they're able just to go through and kind of burn out each one. The, the grand prince, uh, George II, it's a kind of interesting, um, you, you know, you hear these names in Russian history, but you don't always know how they're all connected. But George II, they, he, it's Suzdal, which is somewhere around here, they, he, uh, he's killed by the Mongols. His army defeated. Well, his nephew is uh, Alexander of Novgorod, and the Mongols, you know, burned down a lot of the cities, but they actually never got almost up to Novgorod and then turned back. And it appears that Novgorod made a deal with the Mongols to submit, but they uh, and also the Mongols were not so happy about being all the way up north in the I guess it was getting near spring and everything was going to start melting and turning to mud soon so they wanted to get out but but Alexander um, made this agreement to and be under the Mongols as a vassal and many uh many of the princes you know their places were burned or they ultimately had to submit to the Mongols, but they had the idea that, well, once the Mongols were gone, we can, you know, we'll rebel and, uh, you know, we're not, we're not going to stay under them. Alexander had the idea that he would just be loyal because the Mongols did not have any uh, interest in changing the faith of the people. So they allowed... Orthodoxy to continue. They 
kind of gave a privileged position to the church, exempting them from the taxation, and they uh, sort of encouraged the continuation of church life. At the same time, the, Russia was being uh, attacked by, in fact, the same year that Kiev is burned in uh, 1240, the Swedes decide this is a great time to go pick up some Russian real estate for themselves, and they come charging down here. <coughs> and Alexander has to go out and, and uh, meet them at the Neva River, where he wins a big battle, drives them back, and after that he becomes known as Alexander Nevsky, after the, uh, the battle that he wins. And you probably may have heard of him. He's kind of a famous Russian saint. But... Um, He's important because he's the person who made this decision that in in the coming years to... I mean, sometimes you'd say, well, this is kind of a strange person to make a national hero out of because uh, when Novgorod tried to rebel, his own city tried to rebel against the Mongols, he put them down. You know, he put down the rebellion. So, say, well, this guy's a traitor, really, but... It was his realization that kind of loyalty to the Mongols, political loyalty, was the best way to preserve uh, the religious independence of his country and, and kind of give them the strength to be able to hold off the, the attacks from the West. Right after the Swedes, he had a, an attack from the uh, Teutonic Knights Coming along here, uh, the uh, I don't know if you're familiar. In the Middle Ages, the Crusades, it had these uh, monastic groups that were military, so like the Knights Templar or Hospital or something. Well, one of those groups, the Teutonic Knights, moved up to northern Germany to fight the pagans in the north because this area was still you had a lot of pagans living here. The people. Uh, the Prussians, we think of Prussian means German, but actually Prussians were not German people. They were a Baltic people that were pagans, and the Teutonic Knights took them over. So the, uh, let's say the Prussian mentality is really the Teutonic Knight mentality, I think, <laughs> of uh, the, you know, the military order taking over the, the pagans and forcibly converting them. The Lithuanians uh, remained pagan for a long time, and that's going to be important in, in the church history. And so, you had these, the Teutonic Knights, though, thought that, you know, besides, uh, fighting pagans, they also would, you know, help out by taking over these Russians here. And this, of course, is already the time after, now or after the schism. So the, the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church had, a, well, not only are we after the schism, we're also after 1204, and 1204, remember the Crusaders, had conquered Constantinople, imposed a Latin uh, patriarch, as they had in Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. When you know, when they took over, wherever they took over, uh, the the new papal system was that the Pope is the ruler of the whole church. So when the Crusaders arrive, they throw out the uh, local bishop, the local patriarch, and put in the Pope. Have the Pope appoint a person. So the whole church order went from being one of local election to imposition from Rome. 
And so as part of this, this new policy of church government, the, the Teutonic Knights were coming to impose this rule, you know, universal rule of the Pope on the Russians who were, like the Byzantines, you know, not cooperating. So Alexander's priority <coughs> is to, you know, ch- faced with the choice of whether to pay tribute to the Mongols or to be incorporated into the papal monarchy, he decided that the better thing to do is pay the tribute to the Mongols and remain orthodox and to resist these uh, crusades or, or, you know, kind of efforts by the, by the West to forcibly put them under the Pope. And so for that, um, Alexander Nevsky is a, is a big, is a hero of Russian church history, even though you, you would not think so from a kind of external sense. And he ends up dying, uh, on his trip. Some of the, he, well, he gets made, he ultimately becomes the Grand Prince. And because Kiev was burned, the, uh, the, the new capital of Russia officially becomes uh, Vladimir up here, kind of between Novgorod and Moscow. And so his title, you know, was officially, uh, Grand Prince of Kiev and Vladimir, even though he, a lot of that time is living in Novgorod, but then he had to go over to Vladimir. <coughs> and um, the same thing will happen with the uh, the Metropolitan of Kiev, you know, who's the, the sort of Archbishop supposedly in Kiev. Once Kiev is burned down, uh, he's not living in Kiev anymore. <laughs> he's uh, originally goes over to uh, in the west here, what would now be kind of Slovakia. Uh, and western Ukraine is where the Russians uh, survived for a while, tried to be independent, and he was there. But um, that's, I, I should say, that was the other, the alternative to Alexander Nevsky was this uh, Daniel of Galicia. Galicia. Um, so the area might be like now southern Poland, western Ukraine, where he thought he could use Western help, actually he, and he offered, that that prince offered to go under the Pope in return for Western help to help him resist the Mongols. But ultimately, uh, well he has two problems. One is that the Russian people in that area that were originally part of this Kievan rush, Rus, uh, they were not really interested in being under the Pope. And the other thing is that the uh, West you know, the Pope wants them to, everybody to be under him, but of course there wasn't very much uh, military aid going to be showing up anyway. So Daniel uh, decides that that's ultimately realizes that that's a kind of mistake and himself submits to the Mongols and uh, kind of in order to uh, kind of keep within in union with the rest of, of Russia because he wants to, uh, he kind of wants to be one of the leading people. But he, he appoints the patriarch uh, named Cyril who leaves Daniel's territory and ends up going up, kind of moving. Or he's traveled around, but he sort of spends most of his time up between Novgorod and Vladimir. And this area becomes the center of Russia because it's the, with Alexander's uh, policy of loyalty Primarily, the, the most important priority being the preservation of the church. 
and that can be accomplished through the loyalty to the Mongols, and the Mongols control most of Russia, that's the best place to be, <laughs> because he then, as patri- you know, as Metropolitan has the ability to travel all around under the protection of the Mongols. Whereas on the borders here, although Daniel ultimately comes to the realization that he, you know, doesn't he's not oh, an alliance with the West is not going to succeed. Uh, it's still a kind of peripheral area, and actually, what will happen is that that area, the princes of that area, will always sort of wonder because they're far enough on the border, do we really need to stay under the Mongols or should we make some kind of deal with the West? And, and gradually they, they actually do uh, get out from under the Mongols. And this is kind of what creates um, the Russian church, which sort of starts out as unified in this Kievan period, becomes split by the Mongol invasion because the Mongols... Uh, Lose, lose territory to a, the, uh, a power in the West, which is uh, uh, Vilna, is Lithuania. And what's odd is that the Lithuanians were just these pagan tribes at a very low level of culture or civilization. <clears throat> but when the Teutonic Knights started taking them over, they decided that they'd better uh, get organized and they developed into a very powerful kingdom who then found that they had natural allies and other people that didn't want to be taken over by the Teutonic Knights, including the, the Russians of Western Russia, you know, were not happy about the Teutonic Knights coming in either. So the Lithuanian kings, who were pagan, ended up becoming protectors of the Russians living around them. And gradually this protection extended all the way down to Kiev, uh, as the Mongol armies became less powerful, and they uh, and the Russian princes on the border kept, you know, defecting over to the to the Lithuanians. Initially, um, well, it creates several problems, but we won't get to uh, probably talk about all that. But maybe where we'll pick up next time we we do this. But it it creates the problem of how do you have a unified church when you now have two separate countries, which was, um, so the people under the Mongols or the people under the Lithuanians are both Russian Orthodox. The question of how to do that and then the question of Lithuania still being pagan and having to decide whether to become, because they they stayed pagan for a long time and I think the reason was uh, officially pagan, although many of the family members would become Orthodox or, or Catholic. But I think the reason they say pagan so long was that they couldn't make up their mind which to be because, you know, whichever side you joined, well, then your other side was immediately your, your enemy, so you, you, uh, you held out. I mean, I think that's why the Khazars became Jewish, was they couldn't decide whether to be Christian or Muslim, so they picked something in between. But, uh, they, uh, but that phenomenon will happen there too. This, uh, alright, so we'll say we kind of finished the Kievan period. We've gotten to the Mongol conquest and the, uh, the choice made by the Russian church. I should say that Alexander Nevsky's family, uh, he's the grand prince and his, uh, it's one of his, uh, sons ultimately becomes the 
uh, a prince of a very small little town called Moscow, uh, but that following his policy later, you know, later becomes the most important uh, town in uh, the kind of the capital of Eastern Russia. So we'll pick it up from there in, in this kind of uh, in one month. Uh, this this transition under the Mongols uh, as the as the split goes on. Yes. So it ends up that any of the Slavic people become uh, Muslim and remain and remain that way today. The Bosnians, and this is because down in the Balkans there was a um, Gnostic heresy called uh, Bogomilism in, in the Balkans, and uh, at the time when the Turks took over, uh, the Bogomils, well, they weren't Christians. So they, uh, and I think the, the, the Muslims, you know, were willing to collect taxes, but uh, but I don't know because the Bogomils were not Christians or Jews, they may not have had the choice of remaining Bogomils. So they decided that the best thing to do would be to become Muslims, and that's who the, the their their name became the Bosniaks, and that's who the the Muslim Bosnians are. So that uh, they often say, you know, well, in the Bosnian conflict, these people are all the same. Ethnically, the same people. That's true, but that's but they uh, Bosniaks were not just Christians who defected, but they were actually a heretical group before the Mos- the Turks ever got there. But that's the only one that I can think of offhand. But I'm sure there's uh, maybe in Thrace or something. There's probably people that converted over the years to anything. Else? Yes. Uh, we're, I'd say, we're probably in the late 1240s. We're gonna, we'll pick it up kind of with um, where this split between. Well, I'm gonna pick it up with the expansion of Lithuania and what that what that means for the Russian Church. Oh, that's where I'll start it. Any other questions? Oh. Yes. They were pagans. Uh, I mean, which I mean, did were the Russians influenced by the Mongol? No, they were influenced. Their culture was influenced by uh, by the Mongols tremendously. Their political culture, in the sense of uh, uh, lack of ideals, <laughs> uh, kind of ruthlessness, uh, the. You know, the survival under the Mongols meant uh, kind of kowtowing to whoever was in power and then stabbing them in the back as soon as they were out of power. <laughs> so that a lot of the negative uh, elements of what people associate with the Russian character uh, are seen as coming from this, you know, period of subservience to the Mongols and kind of the the way of life that the princes had to adopt to survive. Yes, it is. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, what was the spirituality of, uh, in, in Russian Orthodoxy approximately the same as it was in Russia? We're, we're over. Oh, okay. We're over the, 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 the Okay. Oh, all right.